0: Welcome to Drilling Deep. I'm your host, John Kingston. You have found the place in the FreightWaves family of FreightCast where we talk about oil and we talk about diesel and we get our name from the fact that oil needs to be drilled and diesel is made from oil. We also drill deep with a guest and today we're going to be talking to Peter Stefanovich of Left Lane Associates. Left Lane is Toronto-based. They advise companies that are looking to buy or sell their logistics and trucking businesses and he's going to talk about what the market is like for those assets today. We haven't really talked about oil prices much on Drilling Deep recently because, quite frankly, I didn't think much had happened. But then I looked at the the, the whole r- r- record for the month of September on the ultra-low sulfur diesel contract on CME, and I thought, wow, there was maybe a lot more going on than I gave it credit for. Before a late surge in price of more than $0.02 cents on the final trading day of the month, it had been down about $0.13 cents a gallon for all of September, That's a drop of about 9.8% for the month. That's a pretty good number for a one-month period. Of course, it tacked on a little bit, about $0.02 on the last day of the month. But still, it was a very weak month for diesel in September. And that drop, percentage-wise, is certainly more than crude. So you can't blame weak crude prices for the decline in diesel far from it. What continues to drive prices down is the imbalance between inventories and demand. The numbers on demand coming out of the Energy Information Administration this week caught more than a few people by surprise. Demand was at about 3.65 million barrels per day. That's down about 300,000 barrels per day from the prior week. And this is happening in the middle of this great freight market. Remember, those numbers are modeled. They are not counting barrels. They aren't the absolute definitive final word. But that doesn't mean that they have no value. They're certainly going to show trends. Markets seem to be focused almost completely on a draw in inventories for that that draw that uh, increase in price on Wednesday, but um, cumulatively for the last two weeks you've had a draw of more than seven million barrels seven million barrels total. That's a significant amount. But even with that, if you take the weak consumption numbers, you get no change in my favorite easy to digest statistic: days cover. Days cover is so easy to understand because the number is small. You take inventories, you divide it by average demand, and the end result is the number of days of demand that could be covered by stocks. Even after all the drop in inventories of the last two weeks, remember I said it was about 7 million barrels, that number, that days cover number still sits at 48.9 days. That is very high. In the past it rarely gets over 40, it's even more rarely gets over 45, and now it's just under 50, and it has been over 50 a few times over the past few months. At one point, it went eight out of nine weeks over 50. That is unprecedented. The research team at Energy Aspects has a monthly report that they put out on diesel markets, and I'm fortunate enough to get it. Remember, in the world of energy analysis, when markets are weak, the analysts tend to use negative words. From the perspective of truckers, though, when it comes to diesel, what an analyst thinks of as bad, a trucking executive or a driver would probably think of as good. So in the last report by Energy Aspects, they described the state of the diesel market as dire. That's their quote, 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 unquote, dire. They talk about demand from Asia, which they say is getting better, but demand in what it calls the Atlantic Basin, which is essentially North America plus Europe, is likely to be quote, unquote, stunted until 2022. That's the year after next. So really, we're talking about a long time. The combination of those two things means that, quote, the market cannot absorb the oversupply. That's what Energy Aspect writes. Remember something about diesel. You can't just go into a refinery and make exactly the amount that you want. You can make adjustments, but you might get more diesel, more gasoline than you want, or you might get more diesel than you want. Refiners have taken big steps in recent years to make less of the heavy bottoms known as fuel oil, but that has taken a massive investment. If anything, refiners up until the pandemic were investing more money into making more diesel, not less, than the pandemic hit. And refiners tried very hard to avoid supplying fuel to the sector hit hardest by the coronavirus, and that's airlines. The problem is that jet fuel and diesel are both distillates. So you can make less jet fuel, but it's hard to make less distillate at the same time overall. So that means you'll end up making more diesel rather than jet. Here's how Energy Aspects put it. As jet demand remains on life support, those molecules will continue to be pushed into the diesel pool for months to come, and the market has no interest in pricing and supply risk. Why would they price and supply risk with inventories in the U.S. at historic level, really for months, for for weeks and for months? And that's why Energy Aspects declared a second time in the report, a recovery in diesel will not happen before 2022 in the West. The good news on the fuel front for truckers rolls on. We're going to change gears in here now on Drilling Deep, and we're going to talk to our guest this week. He is Peter Stevanovich. He is the managing partner of Left Lane Associates. They are Toronto-based, and uh, all I can say is I'm going to take a little excerpt from the summary of your activities on your webpage. We will help you buy or be bought. That's about as succinct, I think, as you can get. So, Peter, welcome to Drilling Deep, and maybe you want to expand on that a bit.
1: Perfect. Thanks for having me, John. And yeah, Left Lane Associates, we represent either buyers or sellers in the transportation supply chain industry in North America. We represent either buyers or sellers, uh, Canada, U.S., both coasts. Uh, we 've done deals up to two hundred and twenty million dollars in enterprise value, and we work with asset based carriers non asset based companies, so three p l s freight brokers, et etc, and warehousing distribution e-com fulfillment companies as well so that 's our bread and butter and we 've got ten employees, and this is all we do, and we only know transportation logistics that 's all
0: and I'm assuming right now given the uh, given the hot hot market for supply chain, these values are pretty high.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Right now we're seeing, especially in the e-com fulfillment sector, we're seeing quite a bit of increase in that uh, pick and pack, co-pack uh, warehousing units and companies that are similar to Amazon too, especially with the influx of of online shopping because of COVID. And what we're probably going to be seeing, especially reports that I've been reading that the normal increases in e-com fulfillment year over year have been about eight to 10%, but they're looking at triple that right this year because of the COVID effect and people are less likely to go to retail stores. So those those uh, pick-and-pack, co-packing, warehousing, uh, logistics supply chain companies are going to do extremely well. And the values of those companies are pretty high right now.
0: Well, okay, so then who's selling? I mean, the future of that is so bright, you can understand why somebody wants to get in on it. You can understand why somebody needs to get in on it, some kind of entity that needs a better e-commerce presence. But why does somebody choose to sell now?
1: So I think it's it's a, it's a very personal decision to sell. Um, there's a variety of things. It could be family issues that are going on, too. There's medical issues that go on. There's retirement age. If people are sitting at age you know 55 plus, uh, they might want to retire. And there could be marital issues as well, too. So there's a variety of different issues where people decide to sell. Um, obviously, with it being a very hot market now, too, you're going to look at Because of how hot it is, the multiples you're going to get are going to be significantly higher than, let's say, it was two years ago. And from that standpoint, you could always wait extra couple more years and push things down um, and wait longer. But the premise always ends up being is how long is it worth to yourself to wait? Because you might have impending things that you want to do in your life, and you might want to get to those things quicker. So something you can't buy is time, but you could by selling your company you could get out earlier to be able to spend more time with your family and friends so it ends up being a deeply personal um decision that they decide on so it, it it's everyone's got different decisions we've sold companies where clients of ours are in their early 30s all the way up to people in their mid 70s so everyone has a different reason whether to switch different in- industries as well too and you know I guess it's 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 tough to say every M&A deal is different and every person's different so there's going to be different re- rationales for everybody
0: now, what kind of benchmarks do you use in terms of whether a, a market might be overpriced or not let's say a multiple of revenue and I'm sure they differ i mean the multiple uh, the revenue multiple for let's say selling a, a truckload carrier or you know a small fleet is going to be different than sell, the multiple the revenue multiple that you might want to be using in something in the e commerce space so what kind of numbers do you look for to say hey, you know this is a really strong market this is really kind of low it's got room to grow uh, What do you look at?
1: So when when looking at the actual market space itself, so we're looking at um the the um uh, the loads that are being shipped out to, so if uh and loads booked, right? So if you're looking at the actual freight volumes, um then we'll know that certain markets are going to be able to be increasing too. And if you look at, you know, using um you know some you know very analytical focused tools, um it helps give a good idea of where markets are going. But if you look at, again, freight volumes are going up e-commerce. If you look at that sector, uh, their their volumes are going up significantly and if you look at those areas to be able to get into it's it's they're going to be they're only going to be increasing if that's best way of putting it and the same thing from the asset base side the residual effect of those e-com fulfillment warehouses there's going to be final mile carriers that are going to be their loads and their load volume are going to be increasing as well too and that's corresponding exactly to the the useful and uh the safety features of buying online versus going into store, especially with COVID right now.
0: But now, also good.
1: Yeah, looking looking at from an actual uh, perspective of you know valuing a company, we still use uh, multiples of EBITDA, so we still look at that and get a good understanding of where a company is sitting at. But from a non-asset based company. You're looking at higher multiples because there's less capital expenditures involved in that business compared to a trucking business versus an e-com fulfillment or a freight broker or 3PL. So those numbers are going to be artificially depressed because the amount of money needed to replace the capital equipment in the business.
0: Are you finding you're doing a lot of business taking, let's say, old bricks and mortar stores that have gone by the wayside? They're sitting there empty and turning it into some kind of fulfillment center. I know very close to me there was an old supermarket that said empty five years, four to five years, and it is now being repurposed as an Amazon distribution center. Is that a hot market?
1: It is a hot market, actually. Some uh, colleagues and, and people I know in the industry in the U.S., especially markets like Chicago, uh, California, Seattle markets, uh, Houston Tennessee, uh, Missouri, I'm trying to think of some other big ones, Um, Florida, Georgia, a lot of the former former malls that have been vacant, uh, people looking for warehousing spaces are getting close to the end user from the final mile. So if you look at from commercial real estate brokers, there's a huge market for them. And I've been in contact with quite a few of them, especially with the work that we deal with um, from either them sending us leads or us helping their clients out there's a huge market in untapped market that's still sitting out there from desolate malls. And there's only, that's only going to increase, especially as, you know, bricks and mortar end up leaving that space due to COVID or other reasons too. And then the need for that final mile kind of spoke um, you know, wheel and spoke model to get out to the end user only increases.
0: All right. So let's talk about multiples there. I mean, you can't do a multiple on EBITDA for a vacant mall. There's no, there's no EBITDA. So yeah. uh, what, what kind of numbers are you doing? Are you just doing it by, by a, a square foot per square foot yeah. in, uh, amount of available space? And, and, and how has that number changed, let's say over the last year or two?
1: Yeah. So it's it's all going to be based... So if you're looking at from the, the, the dry warehousing space, it's based off square footage. Again, if you're looking at uh, cold storage, which is also Extremely hot market. Funny enough, that's cold storage, but it's yeah. a hot market there. It's uh, it's cubic feet, but from um, yeah, from malls and looking at at warehousing at square footage, that's gone up. You know, it's it's regional based, so you can't put draw. You know, use a, a broad brush to say everything's gone up significantly. From where it was two years ago, yes, everything has increased from that standpoint from a square footage. Now, how much has increased? Uh, it depends on the locality that you're in. Again, if you're sitting in the San Francisco market, you're sitting in Houston, Texas market, if you're looking at large city center where there's dense population, those square footage numbers have increased you know, 30 40%, 50% year over year um, over the last two, three years just because of that the density has still remained intact there.
0: All right, let's go to a sort of less sexy but you know, old warhorse and talk about selling truckload fleets or any any kind of trucking fleet. Uh, how hot has that market been? What kind of do you, is, is multiples to EBITDA uh, the standard there, and how much it has that risen?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. From from the asset based carrier side, uh, it's still using multiples of EBITDA, um, and again, that's uh, that's. Earnings before interest, taxes, uh, depreciation, and amortization. For anybody that doesn't know that, that's what EBITDA stands for. But we're we're seeing in the market now. Uh, again, we're not talking the same multiples as we saw in 2018, especially towards the tail end of 2018, with the ELD mandate coming in in the United States and it getting a tight market there and. and rates went through the roof. So the multiples were still historic back then. They've depressed since then. And 2019 was, uh, especially from freight waves too, and following you guys, it's uh, there was quite a bit of a bloodbath in a lot of sectors in transportation, asset-based trucking um, in 19. And then obviously that led into uh, where it is right now with COVID. But the multiples have decreased. Uh, if you look at even publicly traded companies, you are looking at uh, JB Hunt sitting about ten times. You are looking at TFI Transforce International sitting about six, seven times EBITDA. Uh, from an enterprise value perspective, they're they're those guys are massive. They're absolutely massive. So if you work backwards from that and look at publicly traded companies, you are going to get a one or two turns of multiples more than a privately held company of the same stature and size. So getting a good understanding of that, you're looking at multiples of kind of at, the, again, this is this is a subsector specific, but for the most part for drive-in, uh, LTL, you're looking at kind of six times or lower. Now, if you're looking at certain other areas like bulk, liquid bulk, uh, dry bulk, they tend to trade higher. Uh, they definitely tend to trade higher than drive-in, uh, reefer, specialized, flatbed, et cetera.
0: All right, so let's so let's say you said it's going for about six. Now somebody like Hunt, of course, Hunt. Hunt I always yeah, find back, is back six, six. <laughs> uh, yeah, sorry,
1: ba- maximum of six. six. Max, yeah, maximum,
0: maximum of six. Maximum six. I mean, Hunt. I always I always consider kind of a a tough nut to to compare to because simply because you know they're so heavily intermodal, but. Um, so let's take a kind of a straight a straight truckload carrier like a, like a Warner or somebody like that. I don't know what the kind of the multiple would that be on that, but you're saying they get they get a few extra points just because of who they are, because of size.
1: Yeah, they, they, they get a few extra points because of their um, because a their size and scope, but because they're publicly traded. So when you have the access to capital and the liquidity that a publicly traded company has, you're going to be you're going to have a higher multiple and and you look at Warner right now is they're trading at about, uh, you know, high sixes to low sevens. Um, so if you look at that and they're, they're large, right? So they're doing uh, over 3 billion in, in revenue, right? So that's a massive company. So if you compare yourself to, if you're a carrier or a trucker right now and you've got a small operation by small, it's relative. So if you have a hundred million dollar company, to compare yourself to saying I should get the same multiple as a Werner or as a, as a JB hunt or a TFI or as a night Swift it's it's a little bit unrealistic so you have to be have a good understanding you have somebody that works in A like an investment banker like us at left lane associates to give you the proper information because getting the incorrect information will give you wrong expectations so that when you're trying to sell your business it's going to be difficult because your expectations are so out of whack compared to, uh, the reality of this actual situation. So that valuation gap is quite large.
0: Yeah. Dreams of fantasies in an owner's head. Um, let me ask you then, do you ever sit down with your clients? I'm sure you do, but tell me what the conversation is like when somebody comes to you and they say, I want to sell and you look over the situation, you say, you know what? Now is just not a good time.
1: Yeah, no, we, we actually, turn away our clients more times than actually agree with them to decide to sell. Our job is to build a relationship with a client that's over time. And if we're providing bad information, everybody else in the industry is going to know about that. So our job is to make sure we're providing the correct, accurate information. And our job is to be realists, not idealists. So it's important for others like me and others that work in investment banking from a transportation perspective to be realistic and tell your clients what the real, what the real, reality actually is versus trying to push them to do something they don't want. Because ultimately, it's going to be a slog. It's a tough decision to make. And it's a lot of work that's involved in setting up a deal and closing a deal itself and integration. So if you're providing incorrect information, it's only going to get tougher as the processes move along. So you want to be extremely cautious with that. And you want to be doing right on your client, right? You don't want to be somebody that loses that integrity because you're providing them incorrect information. And information that they should be, they should know about the market. So often we tell people to wait and we give them proper guidance on timing and when we think the best timing is going to be in the future as well, too.
0: I always wondered about truckloads, uh, you know, trucking, well, I'll say truck company, I keep saying truckload, but your basic small fleet and, why somebody buys rather than builds? I mean, as we know, trucking is an industry that has a classically low barrier to entry. Uh, anytime a company is looking to grow, it's got the whole buy versus build model to to look at. Uh, if you're trying to grow in a you know highly specialized area, to grow it organically can be really tough. Uh, but uh, why would a, why would a company just say, you know what, I, I could go buy company XYZ. I hear they're for sale; they're going for roughly five times even. Though. Why don't I just buy some more trucks, hire some more drivers and grow my business. What's what's the advantage to buying rather than building in this field?
1: Well, it's a huge advantage. So if you look at it it's, you know, from buying the business, what you're doing is you're buying the clients effectively, you're buying the employees, so the intellectual knowledge that's in there, and you're buying the systems that are in place that have retained those clients over time, that have retained their, cli- their employees over time. And you're also buying based on best systems. So you might have a business that you're looking at purchasing, that they have a better way of doing something than you do. So you're buying something, you know, that is already set in stone and you already know it's accretive or hopefully, you know, it's accretive from looking at the financial statements, et cetera. So it's a big risk to buy a bunch of trucks or leasing a bunch of trucks and trying to add them and try and going after, you know, certain clients that that same equivalent company you're looking at purchasing might have because you could be stuck with a lot of equipment and not a any customers and there's going to be customer loyalty too. So if you're able to purchase a said trucking company that has clients that you're interested in, then effectively you're going to have that accretive value right away than trying and trying over and over again and failing. So you already know that that model works. So it gives a very positive spin on buying something versus trying to grow it. Now equally, I think it's important to grow organically while looking at an M and a strategy from an acquisition strategy and growing through purchasing companies. So it's, it's, both need to happen at the same time. You can't just grow through acquisitions. You still have to grow internally. So it's both are needed in any process. And ultimately, too, if you're looking at buying a company and saying that you might want to add trucks, there might be a specialty in the in this, the, the type of truck or the type of drivers that you're not familiar with, a flatbed truck driver versus a dry van truck driver. Also, there's a geographic uh, regionality that might be different, too. Or commodities that you guys are moving to or that trucking company might be moving that you don't already know. So having that intellectual knowledge of buying a company with all those pieces intact is very important for getting a business up and running versus trying to start something from scratch.
0: I'm sure any company that's looking to buy somebody would have that buy versus build discussion internally before they actually go out and make an acquisition
1: absolutely. No, they should. I think it's, it's, it's a big step to take and there's a lot of risk involved. And I think that's important. You know, us at Left Lane, we represent buyers and sellers as well too. So on our buy side, we, it's often a, uh, a year process before somebody comes around and decides we want to look at purchasing. They might've tried it internally and then they decide to hire somebody like us to help them on their buy processes and buy other companies for them. So by doing that, It usually is a year-long discussion of what are the opportunities, how do we get there, and understanding that it's not just buying the company. That's one piece. It's also about the integration. So you have to be fully set up to be able to find companies, negotiate with the company, purchase the company, then immediately after the hard part, the really hard part happens, which is the integration. So having a proper integration team is important. Having follow-through, making sure that the new business that you just purchased is Properly put together so that way there is no attrition from employees or customers as well. So, you don't want to be buying a business for it to then disappear a year later. So, you want to have the proper systems in place post that purchase and sell agreement signing.
0: I right, let's like a scenario. Well, this will be the last question, but with this, the answer for this, I think it could go on for a while. Let's say you've got a company XYZ, they want to get sold. You go out and you seek out potential buyers. How quickly do you reach a do you pick up the phone and call a private equity investor how, how high are they on your list these days
1: well you know private equity we we, we couple them all together you know equally uh, if if we would give more credence to a private equity investment uh, company or firm that has already an, an asset um, in the transportation space or supply chain space, so if they own um, if they if they own a trucking asset or a three PL or a warehousing company, so having those is is I think quite important. Looking at a private equity, if they don't have any transportation asset is a little more difficult because you have to generally bring them up to speed on the nuances of transportation and, and, and trucking. So customer concentration is usually a big thing that private equity companies get a little bit scared about. Uh, also, lack of contracts for a lot of transportation logistics companies. There's generally not too many contracts that they're not used to as a private equity company when looking at biotech, pharma, etc. So it's a different world for them. So you want to make sure that the people from the private equity world understand that business too. So that way, if they're able to purchase and come to terms with everything that they want to purchase your client for, that they understand how to run it. And also understanding how to run it is a major thing because you don't want to change things right away on any M&A transaction, unless it's, again, it's not doing well. But from a transaction, if you're buying a A good company that's doing well by changing things right away could cause upheaval from the clients and employees alike. So you never want to find a a buyer that's going to change things right away. And that includes private equity or family office or uh, another, another like carrier, if you will.
0: Is the role of private equity growing or shrinking or staying stable right now?
1: yeah it's it's there's a lot more interest especially in that e-commerce fulfillment space the non-asset based side we're seeing a lot of uh, private equity companies and firms looking at that space family offices as well so the 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 shifting from private equity less so from the asset based side because of the capital expenditure side on the actual trucks themselves to the asset light or you know the more sexy areas like final mile or e-com fulfillment so those are the areas that people are interested in, especially if you look at the warehousing and e-com fulfillment because there's a play of real estate plus owning a business at the same token. So if you're able to purchase the real estate, use the funds or leverage that real estate item by and use that to purchase the business, then you're, you're setting yourself up for a pretty good model there. And it's pretty safe to set that up. So there's there's a lot of different areas that you know private equity are, are focused on, but it, it tends to be on the less asset side more than anything.
0: All right, we want to thank Peter Stefanovic. Peter, thank you for joining us today on Drilling Deep. Peter's the managing editor, managing partner, oh, managing editor. I'm on the editorial side, not you. <laughs> the managing partner of, of Left Lane Associates. Peter, hope you'll join us again.
1: Pleasure. Thanks, John. Take care, and all the best to everybody. Stay safe.
0: You have been listening to Drilling Deep. We are part of the Freightways family of FreightCast podcasts. You can find us on all the major podcast platforms. Apple, uh, let's see, Spotify. There's too many for me to note anymore. So you can you can find us. We're out there, and of course, you can see hear us on FreightWaves.com. I've been your host, John Kingston. Join us again.